want to first off start with the, the whole question of with with imperialism, just so that we're that, that we're clear that you know, imperialism is a world system. It's about the clash between nation states. It's not the domination of you know big states. Um, so yeah, so it's not the the domination of uh, um, of small states by bigger states is a is a is a symptom. It's a consequence of that clash you know between you know between nation states, which fundamentally is about the economic competition that's intrinsic to capitalism, you know, becoming spilling out beyond the national borders and the the nation states actually playing a role in um, extending that competition between the nation states. And of course, what goes along with that is the military capacity of those nation states to actually, you know, for the for the economic competition. To, to blend uh, into you know into 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 a military into military you know competition, so I think that's where the fundamental understanding of why you know war is actually you know intrinsic to capitalism comes from you know from that uh, from that very understanding. So I think there's uh, you know the um, a few a few things that actually from, you know follow follow from that. I think I was, we're not going to deal a lot with the. First international and the second international, but I think it's important to, uh, to to understand in that respect that the the socialist parties and that were and the labour parties that were part of the second international prior to the prior to the uh, you know to the First World War were actually you know, were, were committed uh, to um, at least in words as it turned out, but were committed to actually doing everything they could to prevent the outbreak you know of the of the First World War. But when it came to the First World War, actually all those constituent uh, you know. Pretty much all the constituent Labor parties and socialist parties, you know, collapsed and supported their own ruling class in the con in the uh, in the course of that war. Um, the thing that's important, I think, is that what the, the group of people who didn't, uh, you know, that small number of small number of revolutionary socialists who um, you know, became the you know, the core of the Bolsheviks, who Rosa Luxemburg, Clara Zetkin for the Communist Party in in uh, you know in Germany. But there's a very very small number actually in September 1915. Um, the uh, the motion to actually to turn the imperialist war into a class war that was carried, you know, at the at, at Zimmerwald was carried to 19, 19 to twelve. I mean, that's the, the small number of people actually got together in Europe, you know, to discuss that. It's carried nineteen to twelve to turn the imperialist war into a class war. But that, but that became, I think, the political understanding, you know, that led the you know led the Bolsheviks uh, in particular into uh, their attitude to the, to the war and Russia's involvement. Russia's involvement in the in, in the war, and it, and it underpinned what was understood as you know as, as revolutionary defeatism. You know that the main you know, enemy, your main enemy for socialists is, is at home, is, is your own ruling class, and that you work uh, assiduously for for the revolutionary defeat of your of your own working class, of your own ruling class, which means you don't subordinate you know, you know class demands, it's the class struggle to you know to the war effort and so forth. I'll come back to that. <coughs> come back to that. Come back to that a little bit. That the, and that understanding about the turning the imperialist war into class war really underpinned like the three demands that were part of the Bolsheviks' uh, you know, victory in, 19, in 1917: peace, bread, and peace, bread, and land, um, and rec you know, recognizing you know, the, the, the question of the war, uh, the way in which the war. Had, you know, anyway, I won't, I won't go into all, won't go into that. But that's I think crucial to you know, to understand that. And their, their, their victory in 1917, actually ending, taking Russia out of the war, was then also crucial to what 1918, with the revolution, you know, in Germany, that finally takes Germany um, out of the, uh, you know, out of the First World War. 
So, um, so I think in that respect, World War One's um, an imperialist war. World War Two is also an imperialist war, and there are complications associated with that. But I think it's quite important that we understand that that World War Two was an imperialist war, and socialist revolutionaries took a, took the same position that they, that it was an imperialist war, and we had to you know work for an end to that you know to that imperialist war. Uh, as well. I mean, most of us here are more familiar, I think, with the anti-imperialist and national liberation struggles which came, you know, subsequently uh, to the, you know, to the, sec to the Second World War, you know, of, the, of uh, Cuba, Algeria, Zimbabwe, uh, Vietnam, um, you know, and so forth, where, again, uh, the, the main enemy was at home. Uh, many of us were involved in those, in those struggles against the, um, you know, imperialist intervention, against our own ruling classes' uh, involvement in those, uh, in, in those struggles. But what, what happens with the end of the Second World War, um, in particular, I mean, I'll jump ahead there, we, we go from a, situ a multipolar, multipolar situation where you've got n a number of, of nation states, of, you know, Germany, France, Britain, Italy, the United States, uh, you know, that were described imperialism at the First World War, but at the end of the Second World War, what emerges really is two, is two blocks. Uh, so what, you come out of it with a, you know, a bipolar imperialist world between the East and the West, the US and USSR. And I think that, so I think that in terms of understanding how we, you know, what's happening in Ukraine, I think we've got to look at how NATO actually emerges from that, from that imperialist division at the end of the Second World War. So NATO is formed in, in, uh, 19, in 1949. It's not a, it's not a defensive... Um, it's not a defensive operation. I think it's quite important that we you know, understand that, that the US you know, constructed NATO as a way of actually extending its, uh, its influence uh, in, the, you know, in, in the world. It was, um, it was summed up, I think, by one of the, uh, uh, the first, first NATO general secretary of, um, of uh, Russia out, USN, and Germany down. Um, so it was sort of very much conceived as a way in which the US was going to actually conduct and uh, you know, control you know, kind of world affairs as much as it, as much as it possibly could. Um, I mean, I won't go into, uh, I mean, into all the, the kind of the ins and outs about NATO in that, in that respect. Suffice to say for this discussion, I think, is that NATO itself wasn't used in the Cold, you know, in the Cold War, and I think that's also you know, quite interesting, but with the end of the Cold War, actually you start to see NATO becoming the, the mechanism which the US you know, uses to actually intervene. So in 1992, it intervened in the, you know, in the, the, Bosnia, the, Bos the Bosnian wars. It used, <coughs> used NATO to do that. 1999, similarly in, you know, in Kosovo's extension of the collapse of Yugoslavia, 2003 in Afghanistan, and then later again you know, in, in Libya. So with the, that it's, I mean, it's very clear, even in that small thing, that we're not looking at, you know, that it's uh, the, the conscious use of NATO to extend uh, US military power. Um, is uh, you know is a very is a very very conscious one. The other, the other thing which I think that we need to look at is is actually the collapse of Russia, not in any great uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, not in any great detail, but for those who are familiar with um, the international socialist tendencies, solidarity is a part of our conception is that you know Russia is a state capitalist country, um, and um, I think I'll, I'll just come back to that in a tick. But the that the um, the collapse of the Soviet Union. What you saw was a whole range of the, uh, the satellite states that have been part of the you know, republics of the Soviet Union actually break, you know, break away from the, you know, from the Soviet Union. Uh, and many of them then became you know, incorporated you know, into, uh, into NATO itself. 
Um, it's worth saying that even as early as, as 1991, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, there's already discussions inside NATO about the importance of trying to incorporate um, Ukraine, even though that was going to be you know, somewhere in the future. But to get some idea of that expansion of NATO, you know, after the, after the, fall, of the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, in 1999, Poland and Hungary joined. In 2004, it's Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, 2009, Albania and Croatia, 2017, Montenegro, uh, North Macedonia, 2008, there was discussion about Georgia and the Ukraine actually being incorporated uh, into, um, you know, into NATO. So it's, it's very clear, even from that sort of history, that what we're looking at was that you know, the US and NATO taking advantage of the collapse of the Soviet Union to extend those boundaries. And it has to be said in that context as well that there had been certain undertakings given uh, to, uh, you know, to Gorbachev at the time, subsequently to, you know, to Yeltsin, about not extending, not pushing the boundaries of, of NATO uh, to the east. But that's not what happens, actually. That's not what happens. Um, and it's not what happens at all, um, and that uh, yeah yeah. Um, what's it say? I'm trying to think. It was Yeltsin and not Yeltsin in 1991 uh, actually raises the issue about you know about Russia becoming part of NATO, but is effectively repulsed. Actually, got, um, Putin himself uh, raises it in uh, in, two in 2000, um, and is also um, you know sort of uh, effectively repulsed. So the idea that you know NATO was you know this broad church <laughs> that you know, people could be, you know, be a part of is just simply not the case. I think it's also worth um, noting that uh, 2019 India was given uh, special defence status uh, by the United States which is kind of a, a prelude you know, to incorporating and extending uh, sort of the military collaboration between uh, you know, the US and India and it's kind of, the, kind of similar, similar to um, uh, status that's given to other uh, NATO, uh, NATO allies prior to like um, um, Israel and South Korea, for example. The, um, the one thing that I wanted to admit, as I said before, many of us were familiar with the situation of anti-colonial struggles, I think, and of uh, where, um, you know, opposing the United States and Australia's involvement, you know, in Vietnam, of agitating uh, in the context of that for, you know, strikes. Um, you know, against the military machine. Yeah, we celebrate the action that the Siemens take over the Japarat and the Boonaroo, where they refuse to staff those ships that were, you know, set taking armaments, you know, to Vietnam. We built the demonstrations. We organised the, uh, the, you know, the anti-conscription, uh, the against against national service, you know, sort of struggles in the, the context of actually fighting against uh, American Australian imperialism, you know, in uh, you know, in Vietnam, and uh, that. There was a one, one, one other example I wanted to raise though, was the issue of Korea, which was between 1950 and 1953, because in that, in that struggle, even though it starts with an invasion uh, from the north of, of the south, you know, what, what that war turns into is, a, is an inter-imperialist struggle, and it's actually where the, um, kind of the neither Washington nor Mos Moscow slogan actually comes from. So even though you know, the, the south invades the north, um, the, the, uh, the war itself, uh, and in that, in that case the US actually uses the UN and the UN uh, intervention, uh, but there's massive military intervention by the United States, by Australia, by Britain and others uh, in, you know, on the, the side of the south, if you like, and effectively the war becomes a war between, between Russia and the United States. And I just want to read this, <coughs> this from um, you know, 19, 
1950 uh, from you know, Tony Cliff. Uh, in their rush for profit, for wealth, the two gigantic imperialist powers are threatening the existence of world civilization, are threatening humanity with the terrible suffering, suffering of atomic war. The interests of the working class of humanity demand that neither of the imperialist world powers be supported and that both be struggled against. The battle cry of the real, genuine socialists today must be neither Washington or Moscow, but international socialism. Um, I think it's one of the examples which stand out, and there are others nonetheless, where um, in, the, in a situation where we see a clash between the United States and Russia, our position, understanding that you're looking at two capitalist imperialist powers, there's nothing, nothing socialist about the United States, then you know, we, we do, do take that, you know, that, defeatist, um, you know, that defeatist position, which I think is important to understand for what's happening, you know, what's happening at, the, you know, at the moment. So I think the other, the other thing when you look at, you look at Ukraine itself, um, now it might, be, it might be true that Ukraine is not part of NATO, is not in NATO, but it's also very true that NATO is in Ukraine. Um, and I think when you look in particular since uh, 2014, again, I'm not going to go into the ins and outs of the, um, the actual struggles which you know, led to the US playing more and more of a role you know, inside, uh, inside Ukraine. But what's very, very clear is that there's been a massive build-up of, uh, of NATO and of military power inside Ukraine and of intervention by NATO in the West inside, uh, inside the Ukraine. In fact, from 2014, like it's, um, it's estimated at the time, 2014, that the um, Ukrainian army could probably be you know, seen to be about 6,000 uh, you know, com you know, combatants uh, was made up the, of you know, active combatants so, you know, or capable combatants, if you like. It wasn't the absolute number. But it's gone from 6,000 in 2014 to actually over 200,000 know, by, by 2021. And actually, on, if you look at simply the raw size of the size of the Ukrainian military versus the size of what the Russia has put on its uh, borders, actually they're similar, they're similar kinds of sizes. Ukraine now has the second biggest, after, after Russia, but the second biggest military in, in, uh, in, in Europe. It's massively, massively funded. Uh, again, it's between uh, 2014 and 2021, the US has put 2.7 billion um, into it. I've, the figures, I've got the figures for the UK, but similar kind of numbers in, in, from, the, from the UK. The UK itself is, I think, $1.7 billion loan to Ukraine simply to you know, develop, um, you know, develop its, uh, its navy. I could go over as well like the, the extent to which NATO has, you know, has been involved and even to some of the, re in, uh, perhaps I should, the, um, I think part and parcel of that has been the political shift that's taken side of Ukraine, Ukraine itself. In 2017, Ukraine actually um, carried legislation that made incorporation into NATO or joining, joining NATO a strategic, a strategic policy you know, of, the, of the country, which is a, a kind of another indication of the extent to which you know, Ukraine and NATO actually you know, kind of you know, welded, you know, welded together. So even in the, last, in the last couple of years, I mean, the kind of, again, it could go over you know, many, many other, other examples. Um, so between uh, so April 2021, you had an exercise in Ukraine of 12, you know, 12, other, 12 other countries, 12 NATO countries in military exercises in April 2021. June 2021, there was another exercise of 30 countries. So July 
2021, US, Poland and Lithuania were involved in joint military exercises. September 2021, 4,000 Ukrainian troops with 2,000 Lithuanian troops. The UK has actually trained, explicitly trained over 22,000 um, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian soldiers. So the, um, the, the, scale, uh, the scale of what's actually taking place in Ukraine, the scale of the, the, the build-up, that uh, the, mili the military build-up is also, you know, I mean, tried to give some you know, kind of indication of that even prior to what we've, you know, what we've seen, the, the, that figure that I used before, the 2.7 billion, that was before you know, the, outbreak of, the outbreak of this war. Um, but uh, you can just go and this, this is, these, these things are a little bit dated now, but these come from the first 800 million uh, from you know, two weeks ago from the US and that's been extended. But the 800 million include 800 Stinger anti-aircraft systems, 2,000 Javelin missiles, 1,000 light uh, armour weapons, 6,000 uh, um, anti-tank, anti-armour weapons, 100 tactical un unmanned aerial systems, I could go on, 300 drones, 11, 11 helicopters that were previously meant to be, well, that were on their way to Afghanistan, have now been you know, redirected you know, into, uh, you know, in, into Ukraine. Um, and, and that's got, uh, you know, Germany sent over um, you know, 1,000 anti-tack weapons, 500 Stinger, Latvia's sent uh, an anti-missile, so, and on top of all that, you've got the role that, uh, that America and NATO is playing in terms of intelligence gathering and you know, orchest you know, um, orchestrating uh, the, uh, the response by the, the, uh, the, the military, so by the, the, the Ukrainian struggle. So in that respect, uh, I think we can actually look at what's happening in Ukraine, not um, for all the horror that's been created by you know, the Russian uh, intervention and the, the, Russian, the Russian bombing and the, 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 the atrocity that's been carried out in Mariupol, for, you know, for example, um, but to understand that what we're looking at is really in the bigger picture is a clash between the United States and NATO you know, and, you know, and Russia and that Ukraine is actually squeezed in the, you know, in the course of that, uh, of, that, uh, you know, of that struggle. So I think in that regard, I think the, uh, the um, like seeing that wider, that wider picture, the, the message for socialists that was, came out of the experience of, you know, of World War I, that the real enemy is home, is something that we have to you know, take to heart in the, present, in the present situation. So I think and there are a couple of things I think would flow out of that. You know, the no-fly zones, I think this has probably been, been discussed, but the no-fly zones and the way in which Zelensky not just has um, ruthlessly prosecuted the idea you know, of actually establishing no-fly zones, but it's very clear that the no-fly zone would mean um, the, that, that you know, Ukrainian airspace actually being um, you know, occupied or dominated controlled by NATO and by, the United, you know, by the United States, which would bring the possibility of you know, an immediate clash between NATO and, uh, and, uh, you know, and Russia you know, much, much closer together. So we're opposed you know, to the, uh, the no-fly zone. Similarly, with the, you know, with the sanctions, uh, I think if we, um, you know, if we understand that you know, war is politics by other means, uh, sanction is, uh, sanctions are, are war by other means. So the, sanction, the call for sanctions you know, to be imposed, I mean, I could go through a lot of social, I'm sure some of those things will come up in discussion, but the people who suffer from the sanctions are not the people you know, at the top. We only need to look at Iran, where you've got you know, a period of well, a long period, but even in the last, you know, sort of five years of the, you know, increased sanctions, it's not the, it's not the mullahs, it's not the, the, uh, the autocrats of, of Iran that suffer. It's actually the people, you know, of Iran that where the, the people, if they, the argument was ever that the, somehow or other the sanctions were going to bring about the overthrow of the, um, 
uh, of the autocrats in, uh, in, in Iran. That simply is not, uh, is not what, what's happened. It's quite clear that, that the, the United States and the West has used uh, the, you know, the sanctions as part of extending uh, their influence. So I think in that regard, our opposition to sanctions you know, flows from a similar kind of, you know, kind of position. The real enemy is at home and we need to organise an anti-war movement uh, to resist that. I think the other thing which has come out, which hopefully I've already partially dealt with, but if you, um, there's a, I think a section of the left, not just now but also historically, which has sided with Russia simply on the basis that the, the main enemy is the United States and the, the West. I think that's a very, you know, very mistaken you know, notion. As I said, if you look at the experience of the, you know, the Korean War, uh, was quite important for you know, establishing the outlook of the international socialist tendency on a global scale of a rejection of the idea that there's simply you know, East and West of the kind of the campism that said you had to pick the United States or you had, to, you had to pick Russia. In fact, there is a third camp, if you like, which is you know, international, you know, international revolution. And I think, again, that experience is you know, important to bring to bear on the situation of uh, Ukraine. Um, so finally, I, I wanted to, uh, I suppose, enter a little bit with, with where do we fit in this. I mean, the fact is that Australia is already, is already involved in Ukraine. It was already involved in Ukraine before the extension of lethal, you know, of lethal aid, which is now making, you know, the Morrison government is making quite a, a thing about, you know, <clears throat> of, of, sending, of sending lethal aid. The Bushmasters that they, uh, they send on the behest of Zelensky uh, is similar to the, uh, the, the similar, uh, you know, armoured vehicles, I think it's 120, that Britain are actually sent and they've got Ukrainians already in, in Britain actually being trained in the use of those. Uh, you know, armoured you know, armoured vehicles. So we're we're still seeing the way in which the um, the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian military, is actually you know integrated to a large extent with the the military demands of the you know of the West. So Australia is already already implicated. But it's already implicated even before that lethal aid, as I said. The question of the U.S. bases here, the role in which you know Pine Gap has played. We know that Pine Gap has. Um, Routinely played a uh, you know a part in in U.S. and uh, NATO you know missions you know historically. Um, it's intervened in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Somalia. We know that those you know the signals uh, control out of you know out of Pine Gap were instrumental for that. There's no reason to believe that you know that the orchestration of of drones, of satellite imagery, of other military intelligence is not similarly you know running through through Australia. I think the other, the other element is that is when we look at, at Australia in Asia you know, itself, I mean the fact is that what's happening in Ukraine in many respects is a rehearsal for what's actually happening in the, you know, the Indo-Pacific, the encirclement of or the extension of NATO uh, eastwards you know, and the quite you know, aggressive push uh, of, of, to, to extend NATO eastwards is exactly what we see ha happening in the Indo in the Indo-Pacific. Oh, we've got another session you know, later on to discuss that in, uh, you know, in more detail. But when you think about where we situate ourselves, not only are we vital to those US bases, uh, not only we host those US bases, but we're part of uh, the bases in Japan, of South Korea, of Guam, the five bases in the Philippines, the base that the US has in uh, Uzbekistan and uh, Kyrgyzstan. Um, we can see the same dynamic actually playing out, imperialist dynamic playing out in the Indo-Pacific as we're seeing you know, in, in the Ukraine. Finally, I just wanted to leave with the, finally just wanted to deal with the question of the building the anti, you know, the anti-war, an anti-war movement. We haven't got the anti-war movement we need here. That much is very, that much is very obvious. Uh, we've seen some little glimpses of those, that kind of, 
that kind of possibility, but we're starting to see on an international scale you know, the kinds of things that may be possible. The fact that uh, you know, airport workers refused to handle military support that was going from Italy to Ukraine uh, in March, uh, shortly after that, dock workers in Pisa similarly refused to load ships with, uh, with military equipment that was going uh, to, uh, to Ukraine. Uh, Greek railway workers now have taken uh, action in, in similar way, refusing to handle uh, military support from Greece uh, to, uh, you know, to the Ukraine. There's a 6th of April, there's a general strike in Greece which was peppered with you know, anti-war uh, you know, anti slogans um, and they're hopefully doing something yeah, something similar. The 7th of May, the Stop the War campaign committee in uh, Britain has actually called for an international day of action. I don't think we're going to see an international day of action of quite the scale that we saw around the Iraq war. But nonetheless, we can start to see you know, the momentum you know, actually, you know, actually building up. And I think we stand absolutely shoulder to shoulder with uh, the, uh, the Greek workers and the Italian workers that have already taken that action and, and look to that experience, to that example, to try and extend the politics into the unions, into the anti-war movement, you know, in uh, you know, in in Australia. Uh, so, in, in that respect, I think you know, while we have to be absolutely clear, you know, that uh, we're we're that uh, we're for you know for Russia out, Putin shouldn't be in the shouldn't be in the, in the in the Ukraine. But what we're seeing, I think, is effective, not effectively is is a proxy war between the U.S. And, the, you know, and Russia, and in those circumstances, it's not simply a question of calling for Russia out. We need to call for all imperialism out of Ukraine, for NATO's hands off Ukraine, and absolutely no uh, extension of, uh, of NATO or support from the, you know, from, the, from the West for the war that's actually happening, happening in Ukraine. And we've got a particular role to play in Australia. As I said, we can draw you know, on some of the experience from the, uh, the anti-war movement, from the anti-Vietnam movement, from the anti-Iraq uh, Iraq war movement in a different kind of way. But the, the kinds of things that we needed to do there, to build the demonstrations, most of all it was a question of arguing, you know, arguing the politics. Um, you know, over, in, in Iraq it was mostly over the role of the UN or the question of you know, uh, you know, Islam politics and, and Islam to understand how to take a position against, a, you know, a consistent position against the US intervention, you know, in, uh, in, you know, in Iraq. And I think those, those examples are actually going to become you know, important to actually build, a, you know, to continue to build the anti-war anti movement here. As I said, there's a, a lot at stake. Um, I think we are seeing, you know, like a particular clash of those two imperialisms in the Ukraine at the moment, which are already having, you know, a you know, big impact across, you know, across the, whole, the whole of Europe. I don't, there'll be other sessions where we can talk about already. We're seeing, you know, the food shortages, the inflation, the, the, um, ex the extent to which the, um, the, uh, the fossil fuel companies are trying to take advantage to extend their control over the their hold over the over the world economy. I think being being clear about the nature of the war and the need to you know to build an anti-war movement uh, against their own ruling class is actually going to be crucial in the period ahead.